Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. Well, it's morning time here in the wilds of Connecticut. Graduation season has come and gone. My son, now a high school graduate, off to college in just a few weeks' time. And I have, as uh, probably any parent would have, mixed emotions about this event. I am thrilled for him. I am proud of him. I am excited for his future. I am also, uh, of course, concerned about his future in the way that parents are concerned about everything regarding their children. Concerned that he is not prepared enough, concerned that he won't brush his teeth, perhaps, or shower, concerned that he won't do the work, concerned that he won't make friends, concerned that the food will be bad. All of these are most likely unwarranted concerns, but they are concerns nonetheless, as your eldest child leaves home semi-permanently. He will return, of course, for holidays and summer vacations, and, uh, and then that those returns home will dribble to a stop, and then he will go get an apartment somewhere in some part of the country, and then we will never see him again. And Jude is attending a graduation ceremony himself there in Christminster, where he sees all the shiny new graduates of the colleges descending from their carriages and feels himself to be lacking in comparison, but also reflecting on his own life choices and how he is now a poor and broken man recovering perhaps from illness, perhaps not recovering from illness. We don't know, but he has just had an illness and He has been challenged by old friends in the crowd. Look at you, you're back, you piece of shit, they're saying. And he's saying, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I did the best that I could. I I tried to make something of myself, but I was too hasty about it. It was the work of three generations. I tried to do it in one. If you want to criticize me, have at it. But I did what I could. And whether or not I succeeded in your eyes is irrelevant. I could do no other. And so, yes, you see me today tattered, wan, waxen, but I can stand here with some pride. My wife and my morbid child at my side, another on my hip. So that's just what's just happened. 
he's just given a speech essentially to the crowd and been a little, uh, you know, a little defensive, also a little show offy in a way. Cause he said, he's a, he's a brilliant speaker and he's kind of put everybody in their place. Most of all himself. Well preached. Well preached, said Tinker Taylor. And t- even Tinker Taylor can't believe that he just came up with it uh, on his own. He says he must have wrote it down for an, and this only a working man. As a sort of objective commentary on Jude's remarks, there drove up at this moment with a belated doctor, robed and panting, a cab whose horse failed to stop at the exact point required for setting down the hirer, who jumped out and entered the door. The driver, alighting, began to kick the animal in the belly. If that can be done, said Jude, at college gates in the most religious and educational city in the world, what shall we say as to how how far we've got? Jude saying, basically, stop kicking the horse. <laughs> I mean, he's saying it prettier, prettier than me, but he's basically saying, what the hell are you doing? Stop kicking the horse. <laughs> Order, said one of the policemen who'd been engaged with a comrade in opening the large doors opposite the college. Keep your tongue quiet, my man, while the procession passes. The rain came on more heavily, and all who had umbrellas opened them. Jude was not one of these, and Sue only possessed a small one, half sunshade. She had grown pale, though Jude did not notice it then. Let us go on, dear, she whispered, endeavoring to shelter him. We haven't any lodgings yet, remember, and all our things are at the station, and you are by no means well yet. I am afraid this wet will hurt you. They're coming now. Just a moment and I'll go, said he. They're waiting for all the graduates to come. And Jude wants to see them and, you know, twist his stomach all in knots as he stares at them with some envy at what he might have been. Jude, as I said in the previous episode, is acting like a goddamn psychopath. We've seen psychopathic behavior from him before, of course, in this very town, Christminster, when he was following Sue about when he was skulking after her like a thief in the night when he had memorized her living patterns and would sort of follow her from place to place without her ever knowing because he was so obsessed with her. It is this town that brings out the psychopath in him because it is this town that harbors all of his longings. He has placed so much of himself within these cobbled stone streets that when he trods upon them, all of it seeps into his blood and animates him like Frankenstein's creature. And he becomes a monster. A peal of six bells struck out. Human faces began to crowd the windows around, and the procession of heads of houses and new doctors emerged, their red and black gowned forms passing across the field of Jude's vision like inaccessible planets across an object glass. As they, which I guess is a telescope, I don't know. As they went, their names were called by knowing informants. And when they reached the old round theater of Wren, a cheer rose high. Let's go that way, cried Jude. And though it now rained steadily, he seemed not to know it. So he's out there with his kids and his wife. 
and he's got a psychopathic glaze in his eyes, and he's following hither, he's following them hither and thither as he did sue all those years ago, unmindful of the rain, unmindful of the fact that he's just recovered from an illness, his blood now pumping at the sight of these recent college graduates. Let's go that way, cried Jude, and though it now rained steadily, he seemed not to know it, and took them round to the theater. Here they stood upon the straw that was laid to drown the discordant noise of wheels, where the quaint and frost-eaten stone busts encircling the building looked with pallid grimness on the proceedings, and in particular at the bedraggled Jude, stones that he himself or those like him might have carved, now looking down at him in judgment, saying, dude, what the hell are you doing? You're sick. You're dragging your family through the rain to stare upon something to this theater. And it is all theater, isn't it? These people, these new graduates are no smarter than you, Jude. And you know it, yet you persist in this delusion that you want to be among them. You persist in this delusion that you ever could be one of them. And so they stare down at him in their pallid grimness, at Sue and their children, as at ludicrous persons who had no business there. I wish I could get in, he said to her fervidly. Listen, I may catch a few words of the Latin speech by staying here. The windows are open. However, beyond the peals of the organ and the shouts and hurrahs between each piece of oratory, Jude's standing in the wet did not bring much Latin to his intelligence more than, now and then, a sonorous word in um or ibis. Well, I'm an outsider to the end of my days, he sighed after a while. Now I'll go, my patient Sue. How good of you to wait in the rain all this time to gratify my infatuation. I'll never care any more about the infernal, cursed place. Upon my soul, I won't. But what made you tremble so when we were at the barrier? And how pale you are, Sue. I saw Richard amongst the people on the other side. Ah, did you? He has evidently come up to Jerusalem to see the festival like the rest of us, and on that account is probably living not so very far away. He had the same hankering for the university that you had, in a milder form. I don't think he saw me, though he must have heard you speaking to the crowd, but he seemed not to notice. Well, suppose he did. Your mind is free from worries about him now, my Sue. Yes, I suppose so, but I am weak. Although I know it is all right with our plans, I felt a curious dread of him, in awe or terror of conventions I don't believe in. It comes over me at times like a sort of creeping paralysis and makes me so sad. You are getting tired, Sue. Oh, I forgot, darling. Yes, we'll go on at once. So both of them become stare at a convention in awe. Jude at the convention of bettering oneself. And I'm putting mentally bettering oneself in quotation marks. 
because for him, the path to bettering himself passed right through Christminster. It is a path upon which he tripped and fell. He could not get into the colleges of his dreams. He could not fulfill his own fondest desires to become one of those dons in his scarlet red gowns. And for Sue, the convention is that uh, upon which she has been fighting her entire life, but to which she briefly submitted, that of domestic life and marriage. And now, back in Christminster, both of their conventions have come to confront them. Both of the lives they turned their backs upon have come to torture them. And they are both grown sick as a result, standing out there in the rain as they are. And now, time for a little break here on Obscure. And we're back, and I'm going to keep reading uh, this book. They started in quest of the lodging and at last found something that seemed to promise well in Mildew Lane. (laughs) Well... That's not good. You know, for two people who maybe are feeling a little under the weather, they shouldn't be staying at a place called Mildew Lane. You know, you breathe some spores. The next thing you know, you've got lung disease, you cough up everything and you you drop down dead. A spot which to Jude was irresistible, though to Sue, it was not so fascinating. A narrow lane close to the back of a college, but having no communication with it. The little houses were darkened to gloom by the high collegiate buildings within which life was so far removed from that of the people in the lane as if it had been on opposite sides of the globe, yet only a thickness of wall divided them. Two or three of the houses had notices of rooms to let, and the newcomers knocked at the door of one which a woman opened. Ah, listen, said Jude suddenly, instead of addressing her. (laughs) That would be a weird thing if you knocked on the door, somebody came up and you said, hey, wait, hold on, hold on now. Just hold on. Lady, listen. Uh, What? Why the bells? What church can that be? The tones are familiar. Another peal of bells had begun to sound out at some distance off. I don't know, said the landlady tartly. Did you knock to ask that? No, for lodgings, said Jude, coming to himself. The householder scrutinized Sue's figure a moment. We haven't any to let, said she, shutting the door. Jude looked discomfited and the boy distressed. Now, Jude, said Sue, let me try. You don't know the way. They found a second place hard by, but here the occupier, observing not only Sue, but the boy and the small children, said civilly, I am sorry to say we don't let where there are children, and also closed the door. The small child squared its mouth and cried silently with an instinct that trouble loomed. Well, you're born into this family, kid. There's always going to be trouble looming. Get used to it, you stupid piece of shit. The boy sighed. I don't like Christminster, he said. Are the great old houses jails? 
No, colleges, said Jude, which perhaps you'll study in some day. I'd rather not, the boy rejoined. Now we'll try again, said Sue. I'll pull my cloak more round me. Leaving Kennetbridge for this place is like coming from Caiapas to Pilate. And that's another biblical reference, guys. You know, I don't know. I, you know, you're probably thinking, Michael, you should just read the Bible so you get this stuff. I'm not going to read the Bible, guys. You know, there's so many good books to read. And, you know, I don't need to read this good book. How do I look now, dear? Nobody would notice it now, said Jude. There was one other house, and they tried a third time. The woman here was more amiable, but she had little room to spare, and could only agree to take in Sue and the children if her husband could go elsewhere. This arrangement they perforce adopted, in the stress from delaying their search till so late. They came to terms with her, though her price was rather high for their pockets, but they could not afford to be critical till Jude had time to get a more permanent abode. And in this house, Sue took possession of a back room on the second floor with an inner closet room for the children. Jude stayed and had a cup of tea, and was pleased to find that the window commanded the back of another of the colleges. Kissing all four, he went to get a few necessaries and look for lodgings for himself. When he was gone, the landlady came up to talk a little with Sue and gather something of the circumstances of the family she had taken in. Sue had not the art of prevarication, and after admitting several facts as to their late difficulties and wanderings, she was startled by the landlady saying suddenly, "'Are you really a married woman?' Sue hesitated, and then impulsively told the woman that her husband and herself had each been unhappy in their first marriages, after which, terrified at the thought of a second irrevocable union, and lest the conditions of the contract should kill their love, yet wishing to be together— They had literally not found the courage to repeat it, though they had attempted it two or three times. Well, hold on a second. Therefore, though in her own sense of the words, she was a married woman, in the landlady's sense, she was not. So hold on a sec. Wait a second. Now, just hold the phone here for a second. Give me a... Just hold your horses for... Just slow down there. Thomas Hardy, slow down. Are you telling me now, after all this time, Tom Hardy, that Jude and the lady have not yet wed? Hold the phone then, kid. Hold on now. Because I was under the impression, and I believe they had spelled it out explicitly, that Jude and Sue had gone to London and had, in fact, married. I thought I had been told this explicitly. And now you're telling me that they never did, in fact, get married? Is that what you're telling me? That they've been making babies without the bond of matrimony between them? Can this possibly be? So they've been living as a common-law husband and wife, but not a natural-law husband and wife. They're a biblical-law husband and wife. They have been fucking without the covenant of marriage between them and making little follies just the same. But what is this? And how do I feel about that? The housewife looked embarrassed 
and went downstairs. Sue sat by the window in a reverie, watching the rain. Her quiet was broken by the noise of someone entering the house, and then the voices of a man and woman in conversation in the passage below. The landlady's husband had arrived, and she was explaining to him the incoming of the lodgers during his absence. His voice rose in sudden anger. Now who wants such a woman here? And perhaps a confinement. Besides, didn't I say I wouldn't have children? The hall and stairs fresh painted to be kicked about by him? You must have known all was not straight with him coming like that. Taken in a family when I said a single man. The wife expostulated, but as it seemed, the husband insisted on his point, for presently a tap came to Sue's door, and the woman appeared. I am sorry to tell you, ma'am, she said, that I can't let you have the room for the week after all. My husband objects, and therefore I must ask you to go. I don't mind your staying over tonight, as it is getting late in the afternoon, but I shall be glad if you can leave early in the morning." Though she knew that she was entitled to the lodging for a week, Sue did not wish to create a disturbance between the wife and husband, and said she would leave as requested. When the landlady had gone, Sue looked out of the window again. Finding that the rain had ceased, she proposed to the boy that after putting the little ones to bed, they should go out and search about for another place and bespeak it for the morrow so as not to be so hard-driven then as they had been that day. Therefore, instead of unpacking her boxes, which had just been sent on from the station by Jude, they sallied out into the damp though not unpleasant streets. Sue resolving not to disturb her husband with the news of her notice to quit while he was perhaps worried in obtaining a lodging for himself. In the company of the boy, she wandered into this street and into that, but though she tried a dozen different houses, she fared far worse alone than she had fared in Jude's company, and could get nobody to promise her a room for the following day. Every householder looked askance at such a woman and child inquiring for accommodation in the gloom. I ought not to be born, ought I, said the boy with misgiving. (laughs) Thoroughly tired at last, Sue returned to the place where she was not welcome, but where at least she had temporary shelter. In her absence, Jude had left his address, but knowing how weak he still was, she adhered to her determination not to disturb him till the next day. And so we have come to the conclusion of the first chapter in the final part at Christminster. Again, we find the follies in some difficult circumstances, having dragged themselves to Christminster in time to watch the graduation ceremony and been sodden by the rain. They are now nearly homeless and weak and Jude is, again, given to his boyhood passion of education and is besotted with this stony place. And Sue finds a new worry in the presence of Phillotson and Father Time echoing Aunt Drusilla in Jude's own childhood, saying, I ought not to be born, ought I? 
So this is a bedraggled mess of a family. And on that note, let's take a little break. Back on Obscure, we are in Chapter 2. Sue sat looking at the bare floor of the room, the house being little more than an old intramural cottage, and then she regarded the scene outside the uncurtained window. At some distance opposite, the outer walls of Sarcophagus College, Sarcophagus College, my goodness, silent, black, and windowless through their four centuries of gloom, bigotry, and decay into the little room she occupied. So everywhere they go in Christminster, Sue feels uh, blasted by these colleges, oppressed by these colleges. One of them, a tomb called Sarcophagus, oppressing her. Even down there on Mildew Lane, the little house is butt up against another college. The college is so much more imposing, closing off the sunlight into the little house in which she is staying for the night. The outlines of Rubric College also were discernible beyond the other, and the tower of a third further off still. She thought of the strange operation of a simple-minded man's ruling passion, that it should have led Jude, who loved her and the children so tenderly, to place them here in this depressing purlieu, because he was still haunted by this dream. Even now, he did not distinctly hear the freezing negative that those scholared walls had echoed to his desire. Every word he speaks, they echo back now. Every utterance that comes out of his mouth, they say, nah, nah, kid, not you, nah. The failure to find another lodging and the lack of room in this house for his father had made a deep impression on the boy. A brooding, undemonstrative horror seemed to have seized him. The silence was broken by his saying, Mother, what shall we do tomorrow? I don't know, said Sue despondently. I'm afraid this will trouble your father. I wish father was quite well, and there had been room for him. Then it wouldn't matter so much. Poor father. It wouldn't. Can I do anything? No, all is trouble, adversity, and suffering. Father went away to give us children room, didn't he? Partly. It would be better to be out of the world than in it. Wouldn't it? It would almost steer. Oh, so we're getting to perhaps mass suicide, as I have envisioned from the very beginning. Murder-suicide. Father Time planting the idea of death in his mother's head. It would be better if we were out of this world, says he. "'Tis because of us children, too, isn't it, that you can't get a good lodging? Well, people do object to children sometimes. Then if children make so much trouble, why do people have them? Oh, because it is a law of nature. But we don't ask to be born. No, indeed. 
And what makes it worse with me is that you are not my real mother, and you needn't have had me unless you liked. I oughtn't to have come to ye, that's the real truth. I troubled em in Australia, and I trouble folk here. I wish I hadn't been born. And then, as all good mothers says, Sue says, but you are my dearest and sweetest, and my life would not be complete without you. You being born has given me life, little father time. But that's not what she says. She says, I wish I hadn't been born. And she says, you couldn't help it, my dear. (laughs) Not reassuring to a child. Like, well, you know what? You're here. What are we going to do? I think that whenever children be born, they are not wanted that they should be killed directly before their souls come to him and not allowed to grow big and walk about. Sue did not reply. She was doubtfully pondering how to treat this too reflective child. He really belongs in the Adams family. He's Wednesday Adams. He just is a morbid, grotesque little boy. You know, he is, if, if only there had been rock and roll music, he could have grown up to become Marilyn Manson. But instead, he's just this crummy little creature slouching about waiting for his own death and wishing he'd never been born. She at last concluded that so far as circumstances permitted, she would be honest and candid with one who entered into her difficulties like an aged friend. There's going to be another in our family soon, she hesitatingly remarked. How? There's going to be another baby. What? The boy jumped up wildly. Oh, God, mother, you've never sent for another and such trouble with what you've got. Yes, I have, I'm sorry to say, murmured Sue, her eyes glistening with suspended tears. The boy burst out weeping. Oh, you don't care. You don't care, he cried in bitter reproach. However could you, mother, be so wicked and cruel as this, when you needn't have done it till we was better off and farther well, to bring us all into more trouble? No room for us, and father are forced to go away, and we turned out tomorrow, and yet you be going to have another of us soon. Tis done on purpose. Purpose, tis, tis, he walked up and down, sobbing. The hell is up with this kid? He doesn't know she's pregnant, but he, but he is so smart in the ways of the world. And now he's blaming her. He's like, you know, how could you do this to us when we don't even have two pennies to rub together and there's no place for us to stay in the night in you pregnant the way you are, you hussy. You must forgive me, little Jude, she pleaded, her bosom heaving now as much as the boy's. I can't explain. I will when you are older. It does seem as if I had done it on purpose. Now we are in these difficulties. I can't explain, dear, but it is not quite on purpose. I can't help it. Yes, it is. It must be, for nobody would interfere with us like that unless you agreed. I won't forgive you. (laughs) What? Ever, ever, I'll never believe you care for me or father or any of us anymore. So he's saying you don't love us because you got pregnant? Freak, he's just a little freak. He got up and went away into the closet adjoining her room in which a bed had been spread on the floor. There she heard him say, if we children was gone, there'd be no trouble at all. (laughs) Oh.
I mean, everything is leading to a morbid conclusion, right? We know that. We just don't know the nature of it. Is it going to be Jude who, uh, is it going to, you know, is, is Father Time going to gather the kids in a sack and throw them off a bridge and jump off himself? Who knows? Like, who knows what's going to happen? But it's just, it's just bad. Don't think that, dear, she cried rather peremptorily, but go to sleep. So I'll end there. But Father Time is taking all of this a little bit harder than maybe he needs to. Little Jude Jr. is, uh, is getting is getting a little ahead of himself. I mean, yeah, they had a bad day. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's raining, they're wet, they can't find a room, but it, it's going to be fine, kid. Uh, and people have children. That's just what people do. So graduation, of course. My son graduating. These young masters of the colleges graduating. It is a portal from one life to the next. That is a graduation. Taken in its larger form, a graduation could be viewed as literally a portal from one life to the next. And it seems like that's where we are heading, as we have been heading all this time. A death is coming. We don't know the nature of it. I don't even know if I'm right. But a death is coming. Perhaps it will be Jude. Perhaps it will be... Sue, perhaps it will be the children, perhaps it will be them all, but we know that Phillotson is waiting in the wings, which leads me to believe that it will not be Sue, or else why have Phillotson there at all? Something to ponder as we await next week's tantalizing episode of Obscure, but until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>